Let's turn our Bibles to, chapter, to Romans chapter 12. I don't know how I got here this morning. Honestly, it's been one of those weeks where there just have not been enough hours in the days. Um, and to be honest, I don't know how I'm going to get through this this morning. We'll see how it goes. Uh, this is one of, the, one of those days where I'm kind of glad that it's not my first or second sermon. Um, but anyway, um, we're getting into the guts now of what Paul is laying before the Roman church, the purpose for his writing uh, this letter to Christians who are living in, in Rome. Uh, we've introduced you to this idea of cruciformity. And cruciformity, as we learned, I think, last week, is an architectural term that was first used to describe the style of churches, the first churches that were built. And this continued all the way through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Even into the Enlightenment, uh, they were built in the shape of a cross. And I think I showed you this PowerPoint to just uh, flush out what this, what this uh, term actually means. Um, why did they build their churches this way? Like a cross. It's because the purest revelation of God, who God truly is, his character, his nature, his heart, is Christ. It is Christ crucified. And God didn't reveal himself in this way so that you and I could just believe that and go on with our lives. God revealed himself in this way, think about it, God on a cross so that we individually could become that. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Jesus became a human like us so that we could become like him and then put him, Christ, on display for the world to see. So we are the building, we are the temple. Our lives are to be cruciform, cross-shaped. We are to reflect the cross. Our lives are to ooze the cross, conform to the cross. And that's why Paul says, because this is how we do that, we offer our bodies, we offer our lives as living sacrifices. Now this week, we're gonna look at how this is more than just an individualistic thing, but this is something that we do uh, collectively as, as a family, as a community. And here in Romans 12, our text today and the text next week, Paul spells out with such detail, it's his Sermon on the Mount, what a cruciform community looks like. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Romans 12. Beginning at verse three. And by the way, we're removing this uh, in the next couple of weeks, okay? So just so you know that. <laughs> For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many parts, and these parts do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace that has been given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with the faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it, if it is to lead, do it diligently. 
It is to show mercy. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Paul continues this theme of the body. I mean, that's the word that he's using over and over again, the human body. In fact, the the word for, for human body in the original language is the word Soma, and that is the same word that Paul also uses in verse 1 when he says, offer your bodies, offer your soma as a living sacrifice. There, Paul is using the little, the, the, the word body or soma literally. We literally offer our bodies as sacrifices to God. But now Paul, in this text, is going to take that same word, body, or soma in his language, and he's going to use it metaphorically, as a metaphor for the church. And his most basic idea here is that the church is a body. And this metaphor that Paul uses, the church being a a human body, I mean, it's powerful at several levels. I'll, I'll start with the most obvious because no part of your body right now can exist apart from it. I mean, think of any part of your body right now. Right now, I'm, I'm thinking of my nose because it's really big. Um, my nose can't say to my body, it'd be a lot easier to exist apart from this body. I mean, it, this goes with almost out saying, if, if the nose could actually do that, I mean, the nose would just shrivel up and die. So many Christians today not only just criticize the church, slam the church. I'm talking Christians. They also have the audacity to think that they can do their Christian thing apart from the church. And I'll say this. You better believe it's probably a whole lot easier to do this on your own. It's probably a lot less complicated probably much more convenient, but easier oftentimes is also deadlier. Now just think about how the human body works, all its various parts and pieces, how they're all interconnected, how how each part is fully dependent on the whole, and how each part exists to serve the whole. So it is with the church. I mean, look around right now. I'm right now looking at all the different parts and pieces of this body. And I'm also in my heart saying how much I'm dependent on you, how much you're dependent dependent on, on every part and piece in this room, how we need each other. And that goes against everything our culture right now is screaming at us. It tells us from a very young age that we are to be uh, dependent on no one and that you exist for you. See, and this is why Paul then talks about the gifts 
fact, the actual word in the original language for gift is the word charisma, and that Greek word has also made it into our language. But, but your gift, your, your charisma, is essentially who God made you to be. And every person in this room is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And they've been endowed with charisma by God. And we all, each of us, bear God's image through our unique personality, our talents, our makeup, our background, our culture. And this is all part of our charisma, our gift that God has endowed upon us. Now, in light of that, think about all the different parts of the human body and all its complexity and the diversity of our body. But yeah, our bodies wouldn't function properly. They would be incomplete if just one of the parts was missing. And this is why Paul says we are many parts and why he also says, and as many parts, all the parts are not the same because a body couldn't be a body if all the parts and pieces were the same. But as a body in the diversity of gifts and passions and callings, it's, it's that which, when it comes together, that makes us a whole, healthy, complete body. And this is why Paul says what he says in verse 6 and 7, we have different gifts, different charisma, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it, it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And that's what I get to look at right now as I look out on you. I get to look at the thousand and one parts and pieces that form up this one body. And you know what else I'm looking at? I'm looking at the parts and pieces that I could never be. Nor do I have to be it. To the extent that some of you are it. For instance, recently a lady in our church, she was in a huge financial crisis. Much of it was medical bills that were piling up. I know this because I know her well. One day she texted me. She texted me to tell me that someone in Crossroads just dropped $5,000 in her mailbox. It was almost to the exact amount of what she needed to pay off her outstanding medical bills. That was awesome. And again, the left hand doesn't know it, even know that what the right hand is doing with, with, with this person who has this, this gift of generosity. Um, but because this person has such, a, such an amazing gift of generosity, it doesn't mean then that I don't give. But I also recognize that some of you are just amazingly gifted in this area. I mean, every day I, I'm reminded by teammates like you just heard from today in Jamie. Um, they show me all the gifts that I don't have. They're amazing. But because they're gifted in something that I'm not, that doesn't mean that 
I don't have to still do what they are gifted to do. But rather, I should just be inspired and learn how to do what they do so well. I mean, this idea that God has literally fashioned us with unique gifts, passions, calling, and that right now, this body needs each of us to exercise what those gifts, passions, callings are for this body to be healthy, whole, and complete. It's not a spectator sport. Now, Paul reminds us that just like there's cancer to the physical body, there's also a cancer to this body. And you know what cancer does. It it kills and destroys the cells of the body. Uh, The the cancer that Paul talks about in this body, which he mentions in verse 3, is essentially pride. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Uh, Paul has laid out one of his definitions of pride. In fact, this is why in verse 3, what Paul is calling us to is, is humility, which is the antithesis to pride. It's the thing that kills pride. And, and, and verse 3 really is the precursor to everything else Paul is going to write in Romans 12. Because if you and I have pride or if we do not possess humility where we take ourselves so doggone seriously and we're filled with so much self-importance, the very thing that we are doing for God in the name of God totally betrays God and works against God. Because God, his heart, his character is humble. I mean, just look at Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 2, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He gave that all up. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, being found in human likeness. He became not just human, the appearance of a man, but he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on that humiliating cross. So how humble is God, you ask? God on a cross. Think about it. He's that humble. Even this word charisma that we translate gift, the root of that word is charis. Charis is the Greek word for grace because the gifts that we possess right now, it is all because of God's Grace. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. And any part that you and I get to play for Christ and for his kingdom has nothing to do with how good we are right now, how talented we are. Because at the end of the day, I'm just going to state the obvious. And you know this is true about yourself. And it's true about everybody in this room. We're really not that good. He's good. And I've seen over the years in ministry, 
when, when people start to identify their gift and they, and they start living into their gift, and remember, our gift is so often packaged with our, with our passions and our calling. So I, as I've seen so many people live in, into their gift, it, it could be their passion for marriages or the orphan, as we heard this morning, or trafficking or urban ministry or the unreached peoples of the world or, or the poor. I see how they start getting frustrated when, when, when everybody else around them isn't as passionate about their thing or, or doing to the level that they're doing what they're doing in their thing. And I'm just going to tell you what they're doing. They're thinking way too highly of themselves. They're taking themselves way too seriously. That is the sign of pride. We are to live into what God has gifted us to do, realizing that we're not all going to be an ear. We're not all going to be an eye. We're not all going to be a finger. And praise God that there are other people who have different callings, doing different things to make this one complete family. Because these gifts aren't given to us, as Paul says, by the grace of God. They're not given to us for our sake. God gifts us. He anoints us. He fills us. He calls us. He blesses us. Not so that we can build ourselves up, but so that we can build this body up. And this is why Paul does make this a lot about belonging. If you look at verse five, he says each member, each part of the body must belong to the body. Now this raises a very important question. This, this is what your, your staff, for lack of a better word, what, what we wrestle with all the time. How do we get people to belong? I mean, that's the million dollar question these days. Especially in our COVID world right now. How do we belong? Now, staying within this metaphor of the body, how do the physical members of any body belong to the body? <laughs> well, the most basic answer to that is they stay connected to the body. But it's also more than that. Not only do the members of the body stay connected to the body, but the members of the body exist to serve the body. Each each body part right now exists to serve the whole. So belonging in a body happens through serving. When you give your life away. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to the world to be served. I came to serve and to give my life away. Ask yourself right now, how are you serving this body? How are you giving your life away? This is not a spectator sport. And you will never feel like you really belong if you are not serving in some capacity, if you are not giving your life away. And I've been in this long enough to know that I have noticed over the years that the people who really struggle to belong are the people who struggle to serve. 
And they come in here with this expectation, what will Crossroads do for me? Or they serve for their sake, for their agenda, to be noticed, to feel loved and appreciated, to have their needs met, instead of just serving to serve, to serve the body, for the body's sake. So maybe I should ask you this question. Have you experienced a sense of belonging here? And I'll be honest with you. As we are now starting to enter a a, a post-COVID reality, or maybe I should say a a post-vaccination reality, and and, and whatever that means, not saying we're ever going to get back to normal, but we as a church right now are, are, are wrestling with one thing. How long do we offer live stream? And I'll, I'll tell you why we're wrestling with this. We're not wrestling do we offer live stream to, to sick and shut-ins, to the elderly, uh, or, or to those on the mission field. We're really excited about that we've gotten a little bit better at this and that we can offer it to that. But church is not something you watch on a screen. Church is something you belong to. It's texts like this that cause us to ask ourselves, how long do we do this? Right now, do you know your gift? Are you using your gift to serve the body? Because that is what Paul really his, his, one of his main imperatives in our text. If you have the gift of this, then use it. If you have the gift of this, then use it. If you have the gift of this, then use it. He's calling us to use our gifts. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. I don't know what my gift is. I'll tell you how to find out what your gift is. Just start serving. Think of an exciting place in the church. There's so many opportunities in this family right now for you to serve and give your life away. Step into it. And out of that, God will start gifting you. He'll give you what you need. Do you see what we're fighting for here? The whole church of Jesus Christ I hope is fighting for this. This has never been a numbers game. This is a game of becoming the body of Jesus Christ. I love this church. I feel like I'm right now preaching to the choir. I'm, I, I, I'm not right now... The, the, the angry dad scolding his kids. I am the proud parent with a huge smile on my face and heart, and I can't believe I get to be a part of this family. And it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all the gifts. It's going to take all the diversity, all of us serving to be Christ to each other, to be Christ to our world, because, listen, we are more than just a body. Together, collectively, we are the body. We are literally, as the New Testament says, the body of Christ. The church right now is the embodiment of Christ in the world. Just think about that. I mean, think about how amazing it is to think how how God entered this world by becoming 
flesh, by taking on a human body in Christ. Well, listen, that isn't just past tense because God's whole purpose for the church is that Christ would be fleshed out in us and through us and that we would literally right now as the church be Christ's body in the world for the sake of the world. I don't know if there's anything more important that we could talk about right now and what we're talking about right now. Because the church, Christ, his body, is so central to God's plan to redeem and repair a broken world. Just like when God called Abraham out of the wreckage of that dark, chaotic world of Genesis 3 to 11 for Abraham and his family to be God's partner, to repair all the broken things of the world. So God now is calling out his church. In fact, that's what the Greek word for church means, ekklesia. It means the called out ones. We are called out by God to be his vehicle, his partner, to repair all the broken things in our world. To quote N.T. Wright right now, he says this. He says, the church, according to God's plan, is to be a micro cosmos, a little world, a prototype of the world that is to come. Did you hear that? The church, according to God's plan, is to be this this microcosmos, this, this little world, this prototype of the world that is to come. The world that is to come is heaven. And we as the church are to be this microcosmos of that future reality right now. And N.T. Wright isn't just giving us pie in the sky theology here because he's just telling us what the New Testament tells us when Jesus showed up and he goes into all the towns and the villages declaring the kingdom of heaven is here That's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's here, folks. The new age, it's dawning. I mean, why do you think Jesus caused such a frenzy? Because the people knew exactly what Jesus was saying, that he was announcing the inauguration of the new age, the age of shalom, the age of jubilee, Isaiah 58, God repairing the world, Isaiah 61, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And the whole New Testament is here to tell us and to tell the world the gospel. The good news that the king has come and that the future age, the age of new creation, has begun in Christ. And his death and resurrection are the picture of that. And then when you throw the Pentecost event into this narrative, the church then is launched, this, as N.T. Wright says, this microcosm of the world to come, or this micro city that is to be pushed into every city to bring the future age into this present age. Stuff is of extreme importance. 
And think about when God launched this new creation project into the world 2,000 years ago. And then, and then I start to think about that world. Uh, it, it was literally launched into an empire which, which preached its own gospel, which was centered on its own King Caesar, promising its own version of peace. In our world, is full of gospels promising peace. But you know any gospel by its fruits. And Rome itself was a reflection of the gospel that it preached because Rome's gospel, which was aggressively proclaimed to the whole world, was a gospel that promised peace and prosperity to the entire world, but it was a gospel that was achieved through power, might, and domination. And don't think that this was just heralded from Caesar and from Rome to the world. This was embedded in the fabric of everyday life. For instance, everyone in that empire had a rank. Everyone knew their rank. And that rank was determined by how much power, might, wealth, leverage, status a person had. So the bottom were the slaves. 30% of the Roman Empire consisted of slaves. You heard me correctly. 30% of the empire were slaves. The next rank above the slaves were the plebeians or the the commoners. These, These were the shabby people just trying to eke out an existence through their craft or their service. They're the hirelings. They make up 40 to 50% of the people in the empire. That leaves 10%. The upper 10% are the patricians. These are the aristocrats, the lords, the knights, the landowners. They're the wealthy, extremely wealthy. Now, in most societies, people live and do life with people of similar class. So if you're poor, you do life among the poor. If you're lower class, you do life among the lower class. If you're middle class, you do life with the middle class, upper class with the upper class. And if you're an elite... Uh, your place of belonging is with elites. That's typically how our culture arranges itself. Very rarely in our society do the classes do life together. That's not true about the Roman world. Because a person's place of belonging in the Roman world was in what the Romans called or termed a household. And the whole empire was organized socially around these households, thousands of households throughout the empire. A household is more than your family. It's a larger network of people, people from every rank, patrician, plebeian, slave, all doing life together under the same roof, part of the same enterprise. Now that might sound good at first blush, but it was all conducted according to rank. With the patron being on the top, this is why uh, historians and sociologists call this a, a patronage system. It's a patronage system that dominated Rome. The patron, patron is the person who ran the entire household. Don't think boss, don't even think CEO, you need to think the godfather. 
with a little flavor of mobster. This is Rome. So the, the, the patron is the power broker with all the power, and the patron is the one who provides you with your place in the world. He takes care of all your basic needs like food and shelter. He even runs your whole entire social life, even what you do on a Friday night. And he provided all of that at no cost to you. It was all on him. But here's what the patron got out of this. He got tons of prestige, leverage, favors. He got a huge family of people from all walks of life who all lived, showed up every day to do the patron's bidding. Bringing to that patron status, influence, and power. And I'll tell you what this social order meant. It not only meant that people from all ranks and status are doing life closely together, every activity, every function of that household is done in solidarity, but here's the kicker. All that stuff that the household afforded you, it was all according to rank. So all relationship was done on the basis of power. For instance, take the household meal, the main event of every day. Each person sat according to their rank. The higher of close were closer to the patron in the triclinium. Uh, the lower in rank, you would be uh, way down uh, in that corner of the room or maybe down the hall in three rooms uh, or maybe out in the courtyard somewhere because it's a relationship that's done on the basis of power. And then when you looked at the food that you would eat, if you were at that table with the patron, you're getting the finest wines, the finest meats. If you're outside a little bit lower, you might be getting McDonald's. If you're a slave, you're serving everybody and you're lucky to get the scraps. So you ate and drank according to rank. And it's not even just the meal, because Romans loved to party, they loved to socialize, and their forms of entertainment were highly innovated and seductive. So the night might start out a, a bit PG, but then the wives would go to bed, and then the heavy drinking, and then you might have two gladiators come out in the courtyard dueling, um, and bets being taken on, on, on those things, and those gladiators are slaves. Then the prostitutes, the dancers, they all come out, the orgy, all of that, the dancers, the prostitutes, those are slaves. And all these activities are doled out according to your rank because this is Rome. And Rome put rank and a price tag on everyone. Every relationship was transactional. It was done according to your rank and price tag. And households were then defined by this inequality, inequality driven by this competition of everyone trying to get on top of the other, consumed with materialism and lust. And this permeated the whole Roman world. It's how the whole empire was ordered socially, relationally, economically, politically. In fact, the greatest virtue in the Roman world was power that led to glory. Everything is based on power. In fact, the greatest sin to a Roman is weakness. 
to be weak and to show any kind of weakness was the worst moral failure there was. Now we come to Romans, the book. Romans 16 speaks of several households. The household of Aristobulus, the household of Narcissist. But listen, I don't think these are Roman households. The gospel of Jesus Christ is producing a different kind of household, and these households are springing up all over the empire. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 9 says, we belong to God's household. And in the next verse, he says, and our patron, our head, is Christ. But what Paul and the apostles do is they, they, they take this element, this piece, this part that defined the whole Roman world, the household, and they capture it for Christ. Where Christ now becomes our patron. Where we now operate together to serve one another. Where we are now centered around one common goal and that is the glorification of Christ crucified. And there's one huge difference between the household of Christ versus the households of Rome. It's the cruciformity that defines these households. Which means there's no rank, there's no power, but we operate as one body serving one another in humility according to the gifts that God has given us. Are we doing that? Could you please this week read the rest of Romans 12? There are 30 imperatives. They're pithy. To the church. I memorized this as a kid. Can we read it this week? Digest it? Ask ourselves if we're living that? And then this weekend, get together with either some family or some friends because we're not having crossroads on Sunday. Not because this Sunday, this Memorial Day weekend Sunday is a throwaway, but because we take this seriously. Now is the time to not just talk church, but to be church. To not just preach a gospel, but to become the gospel. We live in Rome. And there's no rank. There's no status. There's no power in the body of Jesus. All power, all glory, all rank belongs to him. And when we can do this together, maybe we could look like this to our world. I know I put you on the spot. Forget that. Did you guys get? Ha. This is actually Libby's idea. So I'm, li I'm literally being a good husband right now. That's a beautiful <laughs> cathedral right there. Cruciformity all over it. 
And her next question was, she said, I'm afraid we often look like this to our world. I want to end by taking communion together. And I don't know if uh, those PowerPoint slides are ready or not, but Paul writing to the church in Corinth, talking to them about communion. Look at what he says. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all participate of the one bread. Again, this is not something that we watch. We are participants in Christ. And when we take communion, and we're going to do it this morning together, we become part of his one body. Participants. In Christ. Christ in us. But look at what Paul says in the next chapter. Still with these thoughts about communion. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink the cup. Look at yourself. Examine yourself. In light of what we talked about this morning. Because of what Paul says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body. What body? Not the body of Jesus. This body. Discern right now. This body. Do you belong to this body? Are you serving this body? Are you giving your life away to this body? Are you at odds with a part of this body? Make it right. Otherwise, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. The body being one. The body of Jesus is so important. Let's take the bread. I know it's that crazy little thing that we hand out. Let's take it together right now. His body was broken for you. And then Jesus took the cup after supper supper, and said, this is my blood. Drink it. blood of Jesus. Let's drink it. And as I like to say, I know it was small, but this is real food. It's a real meal. It's the love of God in Jesus Christ. 
nothing can separate us from this love. May we be this love, Jesus, to our world. May this love fill us, change us. As we heard this morning through Jamie's story, so God, that we could be this love, become this love, show this love, put the love of God on display for the world to see and know that you are real. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.